John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 040.2S1412, certificate number 44568, America's Joan of Arc. Without these things, I cannot live, and by wanting to take them away from me, or from any human creature, I know that your counsel is of the devil. And that mine is of God. His ways are not your ways. He wills that I go through the fire to his bosom. For I am his child. And you are not fit that I should live among you. I bet you didn't even know America had a Joan of Arc. Is this something at the Mall of America? Or, <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, it's a giant Joan of Arc, uh, like Mary McCheese statue that <laughs> right. children can play in. Babe the Blue Ox at the at the uh, at Wall Drug. Uh, America has what is America? America's sweetheart. America has a sweetheart. America right. has America's uh, the the America's truck. <laughs> yeah, America's. Well, what is America's truck? Well, I think Ford? Chevrolet would oh, tell Chevrolet. you it was, but I you know I might be. More inclined to say it was a Ford. What if it's Toyota is America's truck now? Nowadays, right? America's uh, America's pride. America's cheese. I'm going to autocomplete. America's cup. There we go. America's cup, of course. There we go. America's test kitchen. America has a cup. It has a test kitchen. Right. It has a credit union. America wears its cup for any kind of team sport. You got to. Um, during the Cold War, we had lead in our in our cup. America's lead. But uh, we had lead in our gas, too. But until recently, I did not know that America had its own Joan of Arc. This was a topic suggested by a listener named Paul, Mm -hmm. Um, Patreon donors of sufficient prestige and generosity can suggest, can can collaborate with us on adding topics to the omnibus. And, uh, And by the way, while we're talking about this, in a recent entry... Uh, I think the Mobile Bay, the Jubilees of, of Mobile, Alabama. Mobile. Mobile, mm-hmm. Alabama. Uh, I incorrectly said that that entry was suggested as a gift for a listener named Emily. And it's a great mystery how the name Emily got in front of me mm. because, in fact, there is no Emily. There is no Emily? There is no Emily. There is only Sarah. Oh, Sarah. 
Sarah was the one who who was being honored with this show about the Jubilees of Mobile. Sarah with an H or Sarah just without an H? I don't know. You couldn't tell by the way I said it? Uh, I, I My sister had a friend named Sara. Mm. So I'm never sure what, what, uh, what S-A-R-A sounds like anymore. Does Sara shop at Zara? Sara was from Samara. Iran, I think. Ah. But I also had a girlfriend named Megan. So whenever I see Megan, I go, ah, ah, I hesitate. I actually knew, a, uh, I, I've known Laura's and Laura's who are extremely proprietary about their vowel. Right. And, and yell at you if you get yeah, it wrong. And it's really, it's kind of not my problem. Laura Kristen, or Laura. Kirsten, Kirsten. At least those you can tell by the spelling. Well, can you tell the difference between Kirsten and Kirsten? Oh, there's Kirstens? Yeah. We have to know about Kirstens now? I'm afraid so. I thought fingernails were made of Kirsten. No, I, I grew up in a, in a place where there were a lot of uh, Norwegians, and there, I think that's where Kirsten comes from, but I may be wrong. They just emerge from the... From the, <laughs> they do from like they're like the rock trolls from Frozen. Yeah, they just emerge from the fjords. Ah, Kirsten. Anyway, so we uh, really disappointed our listener by crediting the episode to Emily. I'm not sorry, Sarah. Sarah. I didn't credit it to Emily. I'm pretty sure it was me. So here's what we're gonna do. We're we're gonna say Sarah. We're each gonna say Sarah in a few different accents, and we're gonna have Mark Miles go back in and drop it in in place of Emily. Sarah. 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 K. Sarah. 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 Okay. So we're going to go and drop that in. It'll be as if Emily never existed. Sure. Okay, good. And of course, nobody's going to listen to these for thousands of years. Right. So they'll have listened to that episode, have heard our awkward, like, robot voice, Sarah. 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 And then they'll listen to this episode later. And and it'll be like behind the music. Ah, cool. cool, Very exciting. But when Paul suggested an episode on uh, a person I never heard of, I'm always very interested when it's a topic I've, n- I've never heard of because, right. you know, that could be, that's going to be some amazing new off the beaten track. Thing. Yeah. Th- th- those omnibuses that we've done on like uh, George Washington, the personal computer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really, if we're going to have America's Joan of Arc, I'd sure like there to be an America's Lady Godiva, right? Let's... Who would be America's Lady Godiva? Lady Gaga. <laughs> Because her name sounds the same? Yeah. Well, also, I'd like to see her naked on a horse. (laughs) Again. Uh, Yeah, it would be some... America's Lady Godiva would just be Tawny Katane or some Cinemax era. Some Cinemax era beauty on the the hood of a... On the hood of America's truck. I would love to see 80s era Tawny Katane naked on a horse. I'm hoping... when When I picture America's Joan of Arc, I picture... Jane Weedlin in Bill yes, and Ted's Excellent exactly. Adventure. That's right? the that's the whole point. America's Joan of Arc <laughs> is Jane Weedlin from the Go Go's. Uh, no, in fact, America's Joan of Arc it was a name contemporaneously used for a prominent woman of the 19th century. In fact, possibly the most famous American woman of her era, and one of the most famous Americans of her era, Anna Elizabeth Dickens, of whom I had never heard. Hmm. One of the most famous women of her era. Probably one of the most famous American celebrities of any kind of her era, and I couldn't pick her out of a lineup. Who are some other 19th century American women? K- Katie Stanton. F- uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the the suffragettes. Right. Uh, um, Susan B. Anthony. Um, You've got your Civil War um, adjacent people like uh, Florence, not Florence Nightingale, like, um, you know, American Red Cross founder Clara Barton. Right. Uh, or... Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln. <laughs> I was going to say Mary Wollstonecraft, but she's English. 
Um, two, or, yeah, two early and two English. Uh, uh, late nineteenth century American. 19th century. Oh, I guess you've got um, other act, and these will these names will come up in our story, like activists like Sojourner Truth or um, right. Carrie Nation. What about then? Uh, as now, famous women tend to be associated with uh, forward thinking and progressive social causes. Was uh, was Sarah? Um, Sarah. 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 Uh, what, what was I just thinking? I was thinking of Sarah Burton. No. Sarah Bernhardt? Sarah, Sarah, Sarah Bernhardt, the, act, was, the actor. But that was from the 20th century, right? Early 20th? Or Sarah no, Bernhardt no, she's 19th century. 19th century. And she will be part of, well, and, and that scene, that uh, theat- American theatrical scene uh, will be, because that was one of the very few, I mean, face it, there were not a lot of ways for women to become famous in a pretty rigidly patriarchal society. Abigail Adams would have been famous in the 18th century, but she would have lived into the 19th century, right? I'm almost certain. Abigail yes, yes. Adams. No, she did. She yeah. was president when her, she was first lady when her husband was president. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, that's the most, e- the easiest way to be a famous 19th century woman is to, to be, be married to a more famous 19th century man. Right. Wife of a president. And that was not true of uh, Anna Dickinson, never married. I do find that, you know, it's a conceit of this show and really of all this kind of pop history and podcasting in general that um that cool historical things footnotes do get forgotten right uh with surprising ease incredibly famous people of their day do not retain their famousness famous fleeting uh whatever the latin for that is so it's what's interesting is we all we know a lot of musicians right because it's their music that survives them we know playwrights because their plays survive them but fame is fleeting if you're famous for something that that doesn't get written down. Yeah, and, and Anna was famous for doing something very evanescent. She was a evanescent. She was a an orator. She was a, a rhetorician, a, a public speaker. Right. And uh, no record of that exists because there was no sound or video recording. And she she didn't leave behind her notes. Right. She's she uh, unlike women. You mentioned Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. These women are on coins and stamps and statues, but they left behind. Whole organizations, right. and Anna was not a joiner. Um, they all left behind memoirs, kind of codifying their own life and mythology. You know that were bestsellers in their time. Anna, as we will see, or Dickinson, I guess we shouldn't use the. It's a little infantilizing to call women by their first names. You know, if you wouldn't call Mark Twain Mark, you should say Dickinson instead of Anna. Um, she left behind no memoir for reasons we will see. Uh, it does seem like it's easier for maybe. Do you, have you noticed this on Omnibus that famous women tend to go down the memory hole faster than their male contemporaries? Well, we talk a lot about uh, woman scientists, and they always seem to be overshadowed by their male patrons, or you know, by the man who took credit for their work, right? Or the, or wouldn't let them into the royal society, or yeah. But even this is a case where, and, and some of those weren't big names in their time. They were doing right. what turned out to be groundbreaking work, but nobody knew. This is somebody who everybody had autographed uh, cards of, collector's cards of. Well, that's and, why it's called history, Ken. Uh, I think there is something to that. That, uh, But there would have been fewer n- notorious women uh, to, to choose I mean, from. But probably. maybe that's an argument for why they should be uh, disproportionately popular. Oh, you know, if, if there's if there's fewer to point to, fewer less representation, then you know you're kind of stuck with Mary Anning if you want a, a paleontologist to make a, a Kate Winslet lesbian movie out of. Mm. You don't have a lot of options. Um, but uh, you know, this is a case where I think you're right that the people keeping track of of who just informally 
of who stays famous and who still gets discussed and taught were largely men and white men for decades. Who are the frontier women that we, are there any like calamity Jane? Yeah, sure. Um, Annie Oakley, Annie Oakley, Sacagawea. It's a, are we pronouncing it Sacagawea? You're now? not. You're not supposed to, right? You're, is it, it Sacagawea? Well, it's Sacagawea. It's actually Sacagawea is closer to the. Oh, I see. Whatever the tribal pronunciation is, I right. guess. I, I don't know. I was corrected by my daughter. Don't say Sacagawea. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, she's so goth. <laughs> is is that a, a quality of goths to say <laughs> to say a K instead of a J sound in it Indian seems, names? Seems like it. Seems to me they're famous for it. <laughs> Does she also say Deutschland? Uh, yes. Yes. That's why Winona Ryder says Beetlecoos instead of Beetlejuice. <laughs> it's uh, the Gemini Project, not the Gemini Project. Uh, so, I mean, it's the same kind of, um, what do you call it, uh, gatekeeping you see today where, you know, nobody really writes about romance novels, for example. You know, even though they, they're the biggest selling books in any given year. Right. We talk about Louis L'Amour. But we don't talk about right. whoever writes those Fabio right. books. <laughs> those books just kind of vanish because they're thought of as oh, those are that's, that's just entertainment for women. You right. know, it's a, it's a way to to say that's second class stuff without saying it's second class stuff. And I wonder if there's some effect here, which is why I didn't know who Anna Elizabeth Dickinson was. It's not just because you have giant gaps in your education, and, because, I'm, a, and I'm a huge misogynist. Yeah, right. Between those two things, all that time that you spend reading DC Comics is time that you could spend <laughs> learning about the famous I mean, women of the nineteenth century. I have century. a lot of information about the All Star Squadron <laughs> to impart right now, but sadly, she was never a member. She was, in fact, a uh, a Quaker teen, a, a, a young Quaker girl from Philadelphia, uh, born in the eighteen forties. That's where a lot of the Quakers come from. Philadelphia. Uh, they just grow on. It's a, they grow on the vines there. That's right. It's a font of Quakerdom. It's like they're like kudzu. Mm, the kudzu of Pennsylvania. Quaker, just Quaker qu- teens. creeping all over the Independence <laughs> Hall, putting up their Quaker graffiti and smoking their clove Quaker cigarettes. Now, what are they made of? Oats. Oats. They're cigarettes they're of cigarettes of oats. Of oats. Mm, <laughs> so wholesome. Uh, well, she, that's funny because uh, because Holland oats. <laughs> Actually, also from Philadelphia, Independence so. Hall, and uh-huh. Quaker Oats. That's where they got their name. They were named for the two. Oh, sure. They were named for the two most famous icons of their hometown. <laughs> mm. I don't believe that's true. But she was the you know, and like a lot of uh, you know, the Quakers famously were leaders of the abolitionist movement, right. principled, uh, principled Christian thinkers of of their time, progenitors of David Byrne. Is that right? Yeah, I think he's a Quaker. Is that true? I think he may even still be a practicing Quaker, although he's a little bit pervy for Quaker to be a practicing Quaker. Do you think like David Byrne and Nixon were ever in the same meeting of the Society of Friends? Was Nixon a Quaker? Yeah. He really does not exhibit Quaker-like qualities. It's American utopia versus American dystopia. Uh, My mom self-identifies as the as a as a Quaker. You know, you don't have to self-identify. You could get baptized or go to services. Oh, I see. No, she doesn't want to do that. But <laughs> but we have Quaker. She just wants to tell people she has a. Your mom's got a real Quaker vibe, John. We have we have Quaker vibes in she our. She does in our have history. A, She does have Quaker vibes. Am I wrong? <laughs> you are not wrong. She is super duper duper Quaker. Dickinson's father had actually been a a Quaker minister, which would put him at the forefront of a lot of these uh, movements and, and thoughts. Although but, Quaker ministers were notoriously quiet, <laughs> right? That's the Quaker. I went to a Quaker yeah. ceremony in Philadelphia. People don't talk, and they don't talk. They just sit there and stare out the window. You can, if if you feel so moved, you can stand and uh, and and share some kind of uh, witness. But um, right. 
in, you know, there are analogous meetings in my own tradition. Every month there's some kind of uh, open mic night if you want to stand up and just say something. And there's a real, there's a lot of pressure in the silence for some, the silence will always be broken by somebody getting up and being like, ah, I couldn't stand the silence anymore. I just want to say, uh, you know, and they'll, and they'll, they'll give a, a little witness. At the Quaker meeting that I went to, a guy in a, with a pocket protector stood up and railed against the Bush administration for a few minutes. And then that opened the floodgates. Oh, so uh, in my experience, Quaker meetings are often, they're very, uh, Accustomed to the silence. Yeah. Oh, no, no. They would never apologize for it. They'll just happily sit, and uh, it's a moment for meditation. Yeah. Quakers are very at home in their own skins, I think. They they have very uncomfortable pews. And hats. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. They don't all still wear the hats. They from don't. Their no, they seem like regular people. Weird. You, you might pass one in the streets. You might. <laughs> Not even know. Um, uh, her, her father passed away when she was just a baby. I don't think she would have any memory of him. And as a result, you know, there was an expectation that she would have to be a girl with a career to help support her family and until she could until she could possibly marry into greater security. So that Which was, at the time meant teacher or nurse. Yeah, there weren't a whole lot of options, but you know, n- n- somewhat atypically for a girl her age, there was always the thought that you're going to have to do something because your family needs you. Right. Um or chambermaid or whatever. You would go go into domestic service. servant, yeah. yeah. She appears to have been she appears to have, from her family, if not her father, from her mother and sister, she appears to have um, kind of uh, imbibed their social awareness. Uh, at the age of 13, or the first public record we really have of her in public life, she wrote a letter to the Liberator, the, the abolitionist newspaper, um, which they ran. And uh, I think William Lloyd Garrison, the, the editor and famed abolitionist, took note of her. Um, and it, this was a time when, uh, as we've alluded to, it was not totally uncommon for women to be in the vanguard of social movements. You know, it, there were still people who would be scandalized to see uh, a woman standing at a lectern. You know, e- even that was a little bit of a provocation to old-fashioned thinking. This was one of the things that started to differentiate, or rather, let me put that another way. The North was always differentiated from the South in the United States. And all of these kind of social, socially liberal, uh, like women in in suffrage, in the suffragette movement, it all would have been, or or in the, the abolitionist movement, that would have been a northern phenomenon. Yeah, if you've got a big scarlet O'Hare hoop skirt, how are you going to get behind a lectern? That's right. You'll be to, you'll be so far from the audience. It would have to be like the mic stand for the singer of corn. <laughs> big. H.R. Geiger, Mike Stanton. But the... Um, that one's for the metalheads. Yeah. They, they finally got what they wanted out of this episode about su- the sorry. suffragette movement. I'm sorry. Millennial metalheads. No metalhead my age would get that reference. Or wa- even want a corn reference. Um, yeah. The suffragettes were soldiers in petticoats. Uh, right. Dauntless crusaders for women's votes. Uh and, you know, and not just that movement, but other movements as well. Sojourner Truth uh, famously preaching against the evils of slavery. Right. Uh, and the, the uh, precursor to the um, to the temperance movement. Yeah, later in the 19th, the temperance movement is underway. So eventually you're going to have Carrie Nation chopping up saloons with a hatchet. Um, and because it was, because these movements were a little bit out of the mainstream of public thought, it was within the movement, it was acceptable to do things that might seem a little edgy, like have a woman as your, as your keynote speaker, right. for example, because you're not interested in conforming to, to bourgeois Philadelphia, man. Like you've got bigger fish to fry. Women don't have the vote or slavery hasn't been abolished. 
Um, and in particular, the Republican Party of this time was friendly to activist women. Right. Uh, the, the, the newborn anti-slavery Republican Party. Um, Again, a North versus South. Exactly. Yeah. Very happy to distinguish itself against the, the, the men only, you know, which is funny because women could not vote for a Republican. And in fact, were spoilers still 70 years from the vote. Right. Um, but uh, oddly, they it's were, their, it's they their were emotions. It's their emotions that keep them from being good voters, Ken. They have their emotions. I mean, it is funny today to hear mainstream politicians continue to make this argument that uh, we, we need to make it hard to vote because if it's easy to vote, all kinds of not so great voters will be voting. Sure. You know, like undesirable it, voters. It, you, well, you really got to want it. You know, this, yeah. this is the Mike Lee argument. If you yeah. make voting hard, then it's really just the good skilled voters because they'll be the ones to navigate slalom through all the challenges and actually get to the ballot box. Sure. If you make it easier to vote, it could be rookie voters. Sure. People that are that have only what, read one book. They don't know what they're doing. They might vote for a Democrat. <laughs> um, but in, uh, in 1860, she went to, uh, she attended a lecture called women's rights and wrongs hmm. being held in some Philadelphia hall. And this was, uh, you know, a common occurrence in American cities was to have these, this kind of back and forth on the role of women, the future of women, should they get the vote? What does a society look like where they do? What does equality look like? Uh, tumultuous question, you know, in the same way that, you know, you might say that civil rights were in the 60s. Everybody had to have an opinion because it was obviously huge stakes. Right. The humanity of the people involved, huge uh, implications of reshaping society. This would have been the topic of a a, a witty editorial in the Atlantic. <laughs> well, in the 1860s, you've got two of these movements. You've got, you know, you're in your second decade of the women's suffrage movement, and you've got the increasing urgency of abolition, which has been building for decades in the right. North. Um, so she goes to a, through a lecture on women's rights and wrongs, just planning on listening to it. And a bustling dictatorial man takes the podium and says that, you know, Women are his, you know, his wives and daughter, wife and daughter are his special angels, and he'll be damned if they have to get, um, you know, dragged into the degradation of work, working and voting. And, you know, with his dying breath, he will stop this terrible movement. And this enrages her? Yes. And she gets wow. up and just from the audience just starts yelling at this guy. Wow, love it. And this is kind of her superhero origin story, uh -huh. um, you know, yelling at this doofus. Uh, the audience breaks into spontaneous applause yeah, at the point she lands. Yeah, and everybody and people, you know, people know her and say, "Hey, you know, that was that was your daughter who shut that guy up at the meeting." Um, and this is a time when there is actually a business, a, a profession, a uh, there's a livelihood to be earned in just regional oratory. Oh, sure, getting up behind a lecture and uh, talking about current events. Her day job is she's a clerk at the U.S. Mint. Oh, um, so, so she, already so sort of uh, white-collar lettered work. She's got a steady government job, and there's a mint in Philadelphia. Yeah. So, um, But uh, in the early days of the Civil War, as she starts to get more and more outspoken at some of these kind of open mic nights, she starts criticizing uh, General McClellan and oh, his, okay. his uh, you know, what is now what we would agree to be— Right, his slow march. Yeah, his—, his, his uh, <laughs> Non-existent march. You know, she would agree with Lincoln that he was not doing a great job in prosecuting the war. Uh, and she was actually fired from her— From the Mint. From the Mint for having the unpatriotic position that McClellan was doing a bad job uh, 
well, in the, the campaign. The president also thought so, but I guess he was keeping his powder dry. <laughs> well, they fired him too eventually. <laughs> oh, um, oof. Having written to the Liberator, William Lloyd Garrison has noticed her talent and decides to sponsor her uh, and sees her speaking at these Philadelphia events. And he starts um, he starts telling her, well, you know, New England is really where it's at. You, you yeah. want to be up in Boston. Right. And then people are going to notice. Charge a nickel and at the end of the day, you get 500 bucks. It's actually, the money is pretty good. You know, she starts, you know, there's there's events to talk about uh, the evils of slavery. There's events to talk about uh, the the women's equality. Uh, and there's places to talk about their overlap or possible tensions between them. The, the generals of the army and their prosecution of the war. Yeah, whether or not Bull Run, Bull Run went well. So this would have been the editorial, well, there were newspapers, of course, but this would have been a form of... Well, it's when people only had the Bible. It was the only book they had. So, of course, you're going to go. If you're going to go see the Bottle Conjurer, you're going to go see. I guess the the niche is that there's no cable news, right. right? And what you need, if you want people yelling about the issues you care about, I mean, you could read the op-ed page and yell in your head because you, you would pick the you'd pick the paper friendly to your side, or you know, if you're a if you're a Democrat, you pick the Copperhead paper that's yelling about what a baboon Lincoln is. Right. Uh, if you're an abolitionist, you pick some fiery Northern paper. And I guess that probably fills the same itch as uh, AM radio, you know, or or twenty uh, four hour cable news. And it, now you don't have to read it in your head. You can go see some some fiery man or woman yelling at a pulpit for an hour. Uh, no thanks. <laughs> thanks, but no. Thanks. There's always organized religion, John. If I could interest you. <laughs> so she starts earning thirty dollars for a speech. Then she starts earning a hundred dollars for a oh, speech. That's big money. She gets called into I think New Jersey's state election because she's um, she's such a uh, articulate, uh, uh, such an eloquent uh, proponent of of the Republican platform. Oh, so she's giving stump speeches. Political on candidates, of- yes, yeah, start bringing oh, her in to, to do their stump speeches. That's good. And she can earn four hundred dollars for giving political candidates a speech. Uh, right. And if you do the math, I mean, this is four hundred dollars in uh, the early eighteen sixties. Uh, the multiplier. Sure, those would are James be, Buchanan dollars. The multiplier would be something like thirty. She's starting to earn five figures. Wow. For a for, for a speech. A, for a speech. Yeah. I mean, that's possible to go on a college campus today and get a five figure check for a speech, but you've got to be mm, five figures. You've got to be, be Ken Jennings. You've got to be Norman Schwarzkopf or, yeah. or something. Who is probably not alive? I don't know. Norman Schwarzkopf is probably not right now uh, a five-figure speaker. Yeah, getting a five-figure speech at the or, University of Massachusetts or breathing. He, is he dead, Schwarzkopf? I have no idea. I haven't heard from him lately. <laughs> he, he hasn't. Uh, he hasn't called. He hasn't written. Colin Powell can probably, or Colin Powell can probably, still go to Texas A and M and get twenty thousand dollars. Don't you think? Sure, somebody like that is you know ideal, I and mean, probably more actually. I mean, there are. $50,000? There are six-figure speakers. If, yeah, if yeah, your yeah. name is Clinton or Obama or Trump or something, you, you know, you can... But you're, but you're not speaking to college at that point, right? You're speaking to the, the Rand Corporation for yeah. hundred grand. Maybe both. I mean, yeah. I, would a college convocation... College... Do people get paid for convocations or for graduations? Yeah, unless they have a book. I see. Yeah. You, you, can, you can make a pretty... It's a weird economy where you make... People make more than you would think for an hour's work, you know, it's a, it's a weird thing. That's how politicians end up being worth $10 million. That's right. Where you're like, wait a minute, weren't you in public service all these years? Like Reagan famously did, you know, 10 speeches in Japan right after he got out of office and he made more than he did in eight years as president. Right. 
Um, she's really good at outwitting hecklers. She's not just... Oh, good. Her impression that she gives at the stump is, first of all, she's a novelty act because she's a, a young woman. She's, you know, she's a teenager still. Um, and she's... Uh, She's a manic pixie dream girl. They often write about her her beauty. Uh, the of beauty, the beauty and the talent of the young woman exercised a talismanic effect upon even the rudest. Like all the newspaper accounts of her just cannot stop saying, you know, she's a young girl. And as a middle-aged man, I am very into that. Uh-huh. Like it, it's the subtext of everything that gets written about her. Right. Um, but she's not, you know, she's not notably uh she's striking. But you wouldn't say that by either the standards of then or now, she... Uh, well, she has dark eyes, and dark, you know, dark eyes are their own appeal. Large, dark eyes. I mean, I looking at her photograph, I will say that she is my type. Ah, interesting. Um, so uh, I see how she might, in in the spirit of the time, be thought of as a great beauty, because that's the... That's the kind of lady I think. Of people as. go both ways. There, there's also people writing about her saying, "Well, although although not a classical beauty, there is something striking." You know, the same thing that got written about uh, Joan Crawford, or you know, any number of people whose whose appearance is incredibly striking due to you know some, some big eyes yeah. or a wide mouth or a, a, a noble brow or you know. Uh, uh, it's a it's a very fine line between and I, this is true for men and women of uh, uh, between beauty and hideousness. Yeah, and often the the thing that is most striking about someone is their most unusual or divisive feature. Um, so she often gets heckled. You know, uh, people try to interrupt her speeches by actually saying a fire in a crowded theater. Oh, um, was that a was that a joke of the time? I think, I think it was just an attempt to break up a speech. You, oh, you, if somebody's on a roll, you try to you try to sit her down by by getting a bunch of rowdies to say fire, fire, and she would just say, "Yes, there is a fire. By God's grace, we have kindled a fire, which these people by their acts are assisting that will never go out till naught is left of the principles they profess, save ashes." You know, she could just Burn. do this. She could just do this off the cuff. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, and they would sit down uh, abashed. Sure, this is a. You, you know, it's a kind of intelligence, right? It, to it's a real quickness. Yeah, uh, the ability to—I mean, there's a—the ability to just form those sentences is a lifetime of reading and internalizing a kind of voice. Yeah, bringing it back around to the fire uh, analogy at the end. I mean, just sort of. But but then yeah, just the, the mental acuity to to keep that up for yeah. an hour of uh, of quasi improvised. Speechifying. She would have been an incredible podcaster. <laughs> Boy, I can't think of a I can't think of a nicer compliment. Can you? What an improv comic this lady would have been. Um, the lowest of all, all art forms. Uh, she would, uh, and by this time, she is an, a traveling speaker on pretty much on permanent tour of New England, mm-hmm. uh, inveighing against the many crimes against uh, women and, and slaves. Um, for eight weeks, she speaks every night. Whoa. Uh, for that will make one horse often for two hours with no, no, no notes. Yeah. And she and does no microphone. No, that's the thing. There's no amplification in these halls. So she is just, uh, and maybe that's another reason why women speakers often do well, right. In a time before microphones, 
They 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 can they can cut through the the buzz of a hall in a, with a louder a, a higher higher pitch a higher pitch. But you would think also quite just less projection because of smaller diaphragm. Is that true? But I think meeting halls then were designed for this kind of speaking. Right? They actually they, had good acoustics. Yeah, the, instead uh, of or at least you know it re- if not good acoustics then at least resonation. Um, uh, when I think about the performances I've done in this kind of environment over the years, they do have a, a way where you stand on stage and just speak in a, in a conversational tone and your voice is audible throughout the room. I mean, that's what the theater required until, you know, just very recent decades when they actually started to mic actors. Um, Which was the end of theater in my estimation. It is weird when you can see the little mic on their cheek and yeah. it's What's supposed to about? be. Stop it. Hey, this is the Lion King. Why does that lion have a mic? Where, where, did that, where would that lion yeah. even get one a, of those mics. A lion wouldn't have a mic. Um, excuse me. <laughs> Actually, I hate to mansplain. Uh, by 1863, she's speaking. To, she does a series of talks at the Cooper Institute, I think, in New York, and she earns a thousand dollars for a speech. And that's one a, of the highest paid performers of the day. Really? Like, who else is earning a thousand dollars for two hours in 1863? You I mean, wouldn't make that much in a year. She's as big as anybody. That's that's a thirty-three thousand. Uh, taking inflation into account, that's roughly thirty-three thousand dollars in modern spending. You that's have, Norman Schwarzkopf levels. You have to be a pretty. <laughs> that's pre-death Norman Schwarzkopf. Think how many first Gulf Wars you have to win <laughs> to earn that much money. Um, and she and at this point she uh, you know starts to take trains out to Chicago and speak there. Uh, Early days of trains. She can. Uh, she's now a national celebrity and not just a regional one anymore. And at this point, the national press, particularly the the, the Democratic, you know, what we would call the Copperhead Press, the against the prosecution of the war and for a peaceful end and probably the maintenance of slavery, is really uh, she's an enemy. She's a national figure, but not big in Atlanta. <laughs> right. Well, in the Confederacy, you know, if, if they talk about this kind of person at, it's all, at all, it's to point out what an awful freak show the North is. Right. Um, but there are plenty of places uh, on the border states and even in northern cities where there's plenty of people who think uh, the war is much ado about nothing. Right. We'll try and sh- shatter down. Yeah. And uh, a, a newspaper says that, uh, a, you know, a curious – and these, these – uh, Conservative papers always send a columnist who who will say something like, uh, "They say the woman is an op- a woman is the opposite of a mirror. Uh, a mirror will reflect without speaking, but a woman will speak without reflecting." Oh, and, of course. You know they'll just be zinging her on the basis of her sex. She would have uh, taken them down if they'd said it out loud, but yes. they hide behind their their. And I'm sure squib. I'm sure in her point of view, any publicity is good publicity because she's one again suddenly one of the biggest celebrities in America. Autographed photographs of her circulate. This is a new. The, the invention of the photograph means that you can now have photographs in your house and maybe they're the Grand Canyon or maybe it's people you know. And there's not a whole lot of household celebrities. She is one of the most popular because of the novelty of her being a 20-year-old woman who is uh, traveling the country at the forefront of, of these two important movements. And this would have been a time, I think, where you would go to see a live speaker that you disagreed with. Also, sure, you could yell. Yeah, that's right. You would- I wonder if there were events where they did the crossfire thing of having. I think they often would. You know, somebody would get up and say, uh, "Abolition of slavery is a moral imperative," and then you'd have somebody else to get up and be like, "Oh, on the both other sides. hand, <laughs> you got to got to get somebody both sidesing slavery." Who was the William F. Buckley ever? Did? <laughs> 
Um, she had, uh, she's an increasingly powerful political figure. In, 19, in January of 1964, she is asked by Republican Party leaders to speak in the U.S. Capitol, like speak in the House of Representatives. She is 21 years old. Boom. She's speaking to the assembled leaders of their party, and she's speaking critically because, in her view, um, the Republican Party has betrayed the, the, the moral imperative of the radical Republicans. You know, other than the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, you know, what has Lincoln done for you lately? You know, really few guarantees have been put into place for freedmen. Whereas in 1864, the Lincoln administration is openly um, offering Southern states conditions of amnesty. And here's what it would look like if you lay down your arms. Right. And, you know, Lincoln wants to end the war. Right. So there's much more rhetoric aimed at uh, white insurrectionists than there is at the slaves who are, you know, at the moral stake here. Yeah. I mean, that was the, that was the period of sort of unholy compromises, right? So she gets up here and yeah, exactly. And it's a difficult you know, difficult for Lincoln to navigate. And she gets up there and uh, just gives this excoriating speech about uh, Lincoln's betrayal of his promise and how he more needs to be done. And Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln uh, and Lincoln and his wife are in the crowd. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, I wonder how much having a young woman give this speech actually slightly defanged it if you were looking for an out, right? Yeah. You could sit back and go, hurrumph, hurrumph, hurrumph. And just the fact that it was a novelty speech allowed her to say really maybe excoriating things and kind of not... That a man would not get away with? Yeah, because yeah. she's, she's shielded by the patriarchal um, attitude toward women of her day, whereby we, we, you know, we must always insist upon their, their special purity and divinity... Yeah, um, that, so that, she can get away with stuff. Yeah, that it kind of would be uh, like, oh, she's inspired. But there might, be, yeah, like Joan of Arc. Yeah, but there might be the opposite effect as well of right. like it's a boy, Truth to power. It's it's really salt in the wound that you're hearing this from a 20 year old woman, yeah. Mr. President. And Lincoln was a good sport. He, you know, the crowd wanted him to speak after, and he uh, and he gave some funny remark via Vice President Hamlin, like uh, you know, boy, I wouldn't be up to that challenge, or you know. And then I guess he gave a private audience for. For Dickinson, and uh, in the White House, uh, yes, or maybe in nearby chambers. I mean, this is taking place in the Capitol, so there was some kind of a, a meeting or a reception. And you know, she was a, you know, it's not like she was against Lincoln, but you know, right. in in the moment, you know, the, it's funny to think of a, a of a of a Republican abolitionist party speaker giving an anti Lincoln speech. You know, that's from our point of view, 200 years, 150 years later, you know, in it's the like, moment, she's mad about the headlines that week. Right. I mean, all the, all the, uh, all the, the Twitters about how Joe Biden is, is, um, sure. selling out the left. Exactly. By, by passing the it's, most leftist le legislation in 50 years. It's the equivalent of, of being angry at people who are not sufficiently against the filibuster or, right, or, right, or, right. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, speaking on my own behalf, I'm against the filibuster. Yeah, me too. I've been thinking about it. She'd actually been approached in 1863, the previous year, by Republican leaders, including um, Samuel Chase, about p possibly – it's a document called the Pomeroy Circular whereby more – less moderate Republicans were trying to get Lincoln off the ticket. Oh, oh, for re-election. For re-election. During the war. Yeah, during the war to get to – for his own party to oust a sitting president and get somebody in there who's actually going to take slavery seriously. That has never worked. <laughs> well, they uh, – Dickinson refuses to come aboard, and this is kind of the beginning of her 
although she'll take the money of the political parties that want her to speak at their conventions and events, she is very reluctant to join organizations, put her name on the petitions. Uh, I don't know what to attribute it to. Just uh, political savvy. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe there's a lot more downside to upside in that sort of thing. It's like backing Ed Kennedy in 1980. From the from the from the pulpit, you can say anything, right. and. Uh, you know, you've got a lot more freedom in the moment. In the in the sixty four elections, she does end up doing events for Lincoln, mm-hmm. but she's not a huge fan. Generally, she's brought in to pro Lincoln, pro Republican events, and then just talks about how awful McClellan is. McClellan is because her old uh, enemy has been nominated as the Democratic candidate, right? And you know, the Democratic attempt to take back the White House is to nominate the war hero that Lincoln's been feuding with. Hey, John. I can. Have you uh, been keeping up with the new T-shirt uh, designs? I think that the that our current T-shirt designs are so awesome that I don't want them to expire at the end of the month. I want them to go another month. <laughs> they are continuing throughout the entire month in which you are listening to this. Hooray! That's for sure. If you haven't looked at the designs, you can go to omnibusproject.com slash store where our current T-shirt designs reside. This month, there is a... Two omnibus classics with a chick tract mm. inspired shirt with a fictional omnibus theme. It looks really good. It's kind of drawn in the plausible style of a chick tract. Yes. And it looks great. And I like this one too. There's the peachy folder, which instead of the normal, what are the normal athletes on a peachy folder? Let me see. There's, there's the tennis. There's the basketball. There's the football. There's the batter. There's the skier. But this one has, this there's one has, well, this one has runners. you playing rugby. Uh, this has me, what am I even doing? I'm interviewing, uh, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm metal detecting for, uh, what do we call this? The floating feet, the Vancouver floating feet. Oh, the classic fifties sport of metal detecting for feet. Or maybe I'm interviewing them. I have like a mic. Like I look like a, I look like I'm doing a fifties man on the street interview with the floating feet. Hmm. Okay. Well, it's cool looking in, in any case. And then there's a bear holding a missile. I don't even know. How does that relate to the omnibus? <laughs> and our the famous mascot of our show, Bear Holding Missile. Mm-hmm. You, you, know, you love him. You know you love him. Uh, these are very cool designs, thanks to our friends at Mediocrity. They are super cool, and I think they are uh, they really exemplify what Omnibus is all about. And if you're wearing one out in the world and you see someone else coming through the rye wearing an Omnibus t-shirt, you'll know fast friends, perhaps life partners. And in fact, it's required to do one of those jumping chest butts. Oh, yeah. Even if the pandemic is still going on. I'm sorry. Even if you can't jump. (laughs) Right. Even if you have a half-inch vertical, you still got to try. Propel yourself at the other person by whatever means of locomotion you choose and collide with them. If you enjoy Omnibus and you are not wearing Omnibus shirts, you can check that out at omnibusproject.com slash store to see what cool things are available. And uh, going forward, there will be new T-shirt designs there all the time. We kept these over just because they're so great and demand has been so high. After the war ends, spoilers, the North wins, uh, slavery is abolished. She still has a very lucrative job in public speaking because the Lyceum movement in America blooms from 65 to 75. Right. There's a decade where really the leading entertainment in America— is kind of to you know it's similar to some author event you hear on NPR you know everybody's got to go down to the hall and hear um, whichever luminary is passing through times 
So eight months out of the year, five times a week, she would give a speech, um, sometimes about the issues of related to the Civil War and slavery, although that becomes less and less a concern as the years go by. It's more about the role of women. In particular, she gives a speech called the Jean d'Arc speech, you know, a speech about Joan of Arc and who, you know, what would a Joan of Arc look like today? She's already been called, you know, as a young woman giving these militant sword flashing eye, eyes blazing speeches, she's already been called America's Joan of Arc by columnists. This would have been like a, was, was she like part of a Chautauqua or like a, like a, were these traveling shows where there were multiple speakers? Yeah, I don't think the same. I don't think the same group would would do Philadelphia one night and then Pittsburgh the next. But oh. it, it, these speakers were on individual tours, setting up solo events. Now, was this the first time that someone directly connected Joan of Arc with the feminist movement? I mean, Joan of Arc would have been. There's no way that she she would have been such an obvious signifier for. But was, Mary Wollstonecraft or anybody? Right, I see. My guess is. If I look up Mary Wollstonecraft, she will name check Joan of Arc just because, again, there's so little representation for a symbolic national figure like that. Um, well, Lady Godiva, too. I mean, they were <laughs> they were ultimately political. Why do you always go back to the naked one? Uh, you know, this is the same way that Mark Twain made his right made made a fortune, uh, and he went to see Dickinson, and he complimented her, although in a in kind of a backhanded way, he also said, she'll become a right venomous old maid someday. Yeah, sure. That's a Twain, Twainism. Right. I mean, well, it's any kind of middle-aged white man being yeah. like, uh, oh, well, sure, look at this fiery young spitfire. Boy, I can't, don't want to be her husband, <laughs> LOL. <laughs> and through all this time, people assumed that she was going to, <coughs> she was going to marry. She, yeah, right. And, and, and go into graceful retirement. And there are letters from some of the biggest names of her day pledging love, uh, including, uh, you know, two different members of Congress, Whitelaw Reed in particular, the editor of the New York Tribune, the most powerful newspaper men in America had a long tumultuous, uh, relationship with her. An actual affair, not just one where he was pledging his love in the editorial page. Letters and meetings. I mean, you're, you're going to have to speculate about, uh, you know, what happened when the lights went off because the letters don't often, but the letters are, are pretty suggestive. Were they reciprocated? It seems like... Do her letters survive? Yeah, both from both sides of the co- correspondence, it does seem like she was into these relationships at first and later not. Right, too smart um, to get married. And in fact... No, no offense. <laughs> Well, and in fact, the uh, the most you know the most reciprocated relationships appear to be with women. Right. Um, I don't mean right, like obviously, but 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 you right. are you are you do seem very approving of this, um, and that includes you know there's a series of women who who are just writing her notes who become her roommates. Well, her yes, special friends, bedfellows with a hyphen, you know, and and so we get. Um, oh, you mean in the term, in the sense of strange bedfellows, not actual 19th century acknowledgement of lesbianism? No, I mean sharing a bed and, oh. and it's hard to say. Oh, I see. Well, I guess that would have been, that would have been socially acceptable differently. The letters say things like, I see before me now sitting all in a little heap in the bed, laughing at me with her gray, soft gray, with her great soft gray eyes, noble, tender, soul eyes, and tempting me to kiss her sweet mouth and to caress her until... 
Well, poor little me, poor booful princess. How can I have thee, queen of my loving heart? Huh. Well. Is that ambiguous to you? Hmm. Rawr. They're they're frolicking in bed and caressing and kissing each other. Yeah, but all of the all of the action verbs are are wistful, non-actual, right? They're all like, yes. wouldst thou, and so forth. But in some cases, these are people who did share a room with her. You know, she would go, you know, as she traveled the country, she would often be rooming with local friends in the movement. Yeah, so right. it, would be, it would be somebody who had a, a, a wife or a daughter. An extra bedroom. Yeah, and she would she would hop in bed. And, you know, homosocial relations were different back then. It sure. was a lot of hand-holding. Yeah, it's, it's not unexpected to, to see, you know two men saying things to each other, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were uh, romantically linked. And right. it doesn't Ishmael mean that, and Queequeg shared a, shared a hotel room. They sure shared do. Shared a bed. But that doesn't mean they were, you know, harpooning. Right. Uh, Although there's an awful lot of suggestive language in there about, about naked Queequeg. Not uh, to make everything about Moby Dick. But her, her life is just full of these, you know, a series of these relationships with women who just uh, pine after her. Susan B. Anthony. Really? In fact, uh, wrote long letters about how much physical contact she would like and inviting her to her double bed, big enough and good enough to take you in. <laughs> what, a, what worlds of experiences since I last snuggled the wee child in my long arms. Oh Susan B. Anthony called her darling Dicky Dicky, my chickadee, my dear chicky dick darling. <laughs> I mean... When you look at, I mean, there's my dear Chicky Dick, darling, I, I'm going to start using that in my own letters no, to, to men or women. It, my own it, it, it works for both. Well, as you know, uh, someone who's captivating from the stage can inspire a real passionate, like love interest. Um, you feel is, like they're connecting with you from up there. Yeah, this has happened to me multiple times in the rock and roll years where. Watching someone that I know take the stage and put on a captivating performance, I'm like, please marry me. And then they get down off the stage. And you're like, and you're oh, like, that's Colin Malloy. Oh, right. <laughs> there he is again. <laughs> um, so, you know, the bulk of the letters do seem to suggest that some of these relations with women were physical right. and romantic, and it's not just flowery 19th century language in, but, these, in these feather beds. But what you're leading up to is that she never married. She never married. Huh. Uh, all these relationships with men ended in disappointment for them, whereas the relationship with women seemed to be have been requited more. Lifelong. Um, yeah. And she remains uh, politically relevant throughout the 1860s. She's invited to an 1866 convention uh, among the Republicans on re- Reconstruction-related issues. And uh, her... Speechifying helps convince the party of the importance of black suffrage, which was not a slam dunk after freeing the slaves. No, like, not at all. Should, yeah, but we're not going to let them vote. I mean, right? Reconstruction I mean, was not a success right. overwhelmingly. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but mid 19th century America was incredibly racist. Yes. Even the people who thought of slavery as a great ill did not want, did not think, um, People of a different skin color should be living on their block or working in their workplaces or serving in Congress. There are all those 40 acres and a mule packages that are still stacked up in some federal warehouse somewhere. (laughs) With the Ark of the Covenant. (laughs) Uh, Frederick Douglass later, her speech was so effective that Frederick Douglass later credited 
Dickinson with uh, essentially writing the text of the 15th Amendment. Oh, wow. Uh, guaranteeing black men the right to vote. Now, what? why did she not pivot entirely to suffrage as that became the popular movement? She really seems to avoid women's suffrage conventions. Like it... In 1869, Susan B. Anthony finally flirts her into going to a women's rights convention, but this is 20 years after the movement began. Right. Uh, she just seems to be temperamentally not a joiner. Right. Um, and that would have been typecasting. I, I wonder if it's, you know, there's some degree, I, you know, I don't know, I don't have a sense of Dickinson personally, but in general, knowing this kind of person, the kind of person who likes to, who can pull this off and who likes to hear their own voice for two hours on a stage, maybe not the one does to. not want to be part of a movement. Yeah, yeah, right. Because she's the star of the Anna Dickinson show. Right. And if she starts hanging out with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, she's uh, you know, she's um, you know, our daughter's daughters will adore us, but it doesn't necessarily mean that she's in the spotlight. It's funny how much uh post post Civil War uh, race relations probably became a very unpopular topic, even in the North, because there was that sense, as is true also of movies in the 1990s, where we were like, listen, it's a post-racial America, so problem solved, yeah. and let's get this off the table and start just p- casting Denzel in every movie. Um, it must have been no longer a popular topic because it got down in the weeds. Now we were talking about actual change rather than symbolic change. And the overlap of that with the women's movement is very tricky Yeah, because, you know, if you feel strongly about women's suffrage, it's kind, even if you're an abolitionist, it's kind of an outrage that black men who your contemporaries all agree are, are not even, you know, are barely human beings are voting ahead of you. One of the great ladies of Boston. Right. Uh, it really is. Well, I mean, it's, it's a slap in the face, or at least it's a reminder of how deeply the how deeply patriarchal those divisions are. You could be a suffragette and a racist. <laughs> I'm not saying all suffragettes are racist. No, 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 but it's I'm possible. Not, I'm not saying the mom in Mary Poppins is racist, although... Wait a minute. Could she be? Uh, so there's that tricky tension there, and you're right. You know, Reconstruction quickly becomes this crazy quagmire, and there's there seems to be a sense, even among Republican politicians, that... They kind of want it uh, forgotten. You sure, know? a uh, crazy quagmire by design. Yeah, you know, she gets asked to speak about um, Reconstruction issues, and she's just kind of over it. You know, she actually backs Horace Greeley huh. in the, uh, what election would that be, 72 or 68? 68, I think. This is a Jeopardy question. You'd better have it on hand. You know, he was the Democratic challenger to Ulysses S. Grant, of whom, um, right. of whom Dickinson did not think highly. And in fact, there was a breakaway part. There was a breakaway um, Republican faction that nominated Greeley as well. He was the the nominee of both the Democrats and kind of the sensible Republicans who thought that Reconstru- Andrew Johnson's Reconstruction had gone too far, and Grant was a divisive figure. Um, so she stumped for Greeley, who and it kind of kind of in the '90s point of view of yeah, Denzel's an action hero now. We're we, fine. We don't have to refer to him as a black action hero. We we yeah. did it. Sla- yeah, right. Slavery has been abolished. Right. This is no longer a crucial moral issue. Um, so you know her name is still in the papers everywhere for her. You know she's still an eligible young woman dating all these exciting people. She dates Benjamin Butler, the Union general uh, who 
famously occupied New Orleans and went on to become governor of Massachusetts. Um, that's a long relationship of, of flirty letters oh. from him calling her Lizzie in the third person, like her middle name, uh-huh. and pretending there's a there's a person named Lizzie that you should know I'm really into. It's, oh, uh, that's weird. But also, yeah, I get it. You don't want to read these Cyrano kind of letters from <laughs> from the terror of New Orleans? <laughs> Uh, another feminist milestone in the 1870s. She begins, she tours the West for the first time, loves Colorado, becomes the first woman to climb Mount Albert, the highest point in the state. I mean, white woman, I I guess we have no way of knowing how many, what what kinds of tribal expeditions climbed the 14ers. Right. Although it seems like something that the Native Americans would have recognized was a a pointless activity. They'd be too, they'd be too bright. Well, yeah, you get up there and then what? Turn around. (laughs) It just seems like a, like a specifically European kind of mentality. Like we got to get to the top of the mountain. I feel like you're really idealizing the native Americans (laughs) as as just too smart to climb. Yeah. Maybe there's a few dopes though. Maybe just just like we do. I'm sure it was a dare. Some, some young brave said to another, like, but you can't get to the top of the mountain before me. She goes up Pike's Peak on a mule. She enjoys the scandal. She she creates by um, actually not riding side saddle. Sure. You know, women weren't allowed to put anything between their legs sure. back then. Inclu- Let alone a horse. Including a horse. Yeah, yeah. maybe le- maybe the horse is course, the worst thing. Of course, um, in, Unfortunately, her career begins to decline. Climbing Pike's Peak is kind of... The, that's the peak. That's the peak. She literally. reaches the, the figurative peak and the literal peak. And the Panic of 1873, as you might guess, arrives in 1873, right, right. on schedule. Right. And it War leads to the decline of the Lyceum circuit. Suddenly, people don't have thousands of dollars to bring in uh, um, somebody to come in and, and talk about the urgent the urgent call of uh, of women today or whatever. Was there any other development in the theater that would also have made that not as appealing? Well, she uh, the 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 legitimate theater, dramatic theater is still thriving. And Dickinson decides to pivot to that. Oh. Despite the concerns of her family that it's even more unladylike and less appropriate than anything she's done so far at a podium. She's still a young woman, still barely in her 30s. Yeah, let's see. She would have been, yeah, she's in her 30s. So she's, uh, you know, this is the perfect time for her to become a great stage diva, yes. And, you know, she's already, you know, she's written her first book uh, in 1868 called What Answer, which is kind of a, uh, a reconstruction era tragic uh it's a it's uh, it's a kind of a melodrama with a, an interracial love story as the great romeo and juliet tragedy apparently it's not any good but because it, it wait, be- interracial yeah there's a uh, there's a character who's passing as white and oh, then so the white the the wealthy white uh, let's see which way does it go i think a wealthy white banker falls in love with a woman not realizing that uh, her mom is African-American and, you know, so this is all kind of edgy and, uh, and even though the book is not good, it, you know, it gets big reviews from Harriet Beecher Stowe because it's taking on these important, uh, issues of the day. So she's thinking, look, I'll just write myself as these great women of history. I'll get out there and be St. Joan or Anne Boleyn or, or, uh, or literary characters. I'll be Jane Eyre or whatever. And it's going to go great. And as again, one of the big, the biggest celebrity, probably the most famous woman in America at the time, she has the clout to do this. She writes a play in which she plays Anne Boleyn and she performs, uh, first in smaller towns, then in Boston, local critics love her. Mm. They say, well, you know, there's kind of an audience consensus that she's not great in the, the actual emotional, not a great actor. Yeah. But you know, the parts of the, of the play that have just 
grand speeches. You know, she can do that with her eyes closed and it's all very inspiring. Right. But the New York critics never warm to her. Um, no matter where she performs, the New York papers will send somebody to say, boy, this is a, a bad idea for this, um, you know, this megalomaniac thinks she can be an actress. Right. Uh, and when she plays New York, it's also a disaster. Um, and there does seem to be when you, you know, it's impossible to see her performance today. It's, you know, I would, I would guess that she was not some great instinctual actress. Yeah. Just cause you're good at Cooper union doesn't mean you're going to be good up on Broadway, but all these reviews are very faintly like, you, you know how, you know, if this, if there's a way to take a great celebrity down a peg, that's the interesting angle for a journalist, right? Yeah. Um, she triumphs again is not a, is not dog bites man, you know? So, and a lot of these do kind of seem like they're taking a little bit of relish in this uppity young woman who's always been so great and had everything handed to her. Well, this is finally a bridge too far. Right. She's met her match. Uh, and she makes the mistake of deciding that maybe she should, she announces that one night she's going to give her performances Anne Boleyn and then she's going to get up and just rebut her critics. <laughs> so she does the play, and then the audience has to stay for an hour while she just reads her own reviews and yells at the at the New York papers. Yeah, this is like, she's, she's turning into a full-on rock star now. Yes, and you're starting to see the signs of, uh, the signs of danger that come with that kind of fame. Yeah, she, she should join Oasis. <laughs> she writes other scripts where she's a Roman uh, emperor's wife, where she's Jane Eyre, and they're not good... She decides to write a memoir of her stage time, and it sells exactly. It sells less than a hundred copies. Oh, ouch! So she's fallen. Now. Her she's... star is beginning to dim a little, and and she can't resist tangling people. And she seems to be difficult. Huh. Maybe she's, um, you know, this this is a side effect of being the most famous person in America, but also being good at soliloquizing for two and a half hours, like super inflamed. That's not somebody you want in a business negotiation. Yeah, or not somebody you want to get into a personal argument with over who's the little cuddle bunny in the bed. Yeah, and she could be, again, on the wrong side of expectations about women as well. Right. You know, how dare you, uh, you know, be a good negotiator? That's not what we expect from you. But even just if she's arguing with Susan B. Anthony, maybe she gets dis disinvited to some uh, some suffragette speeches. She gets into a business relationship with Fanny Davenport, the great stage diva of her day, mm -hmm. who thinks this is perfect. We'll collaborate. You write some of your great speeches for me. I'll play the Empress whatever. This writes itself. No, she wants to be a, she wants it to be a, a great American story. She wants to, you know, be some woman of the frontier or whatever. Right. Annie Oakley. And uh and Dickinson stalls for months. Davenport's like, where's the script? Where's the script? Yeah, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And finally, she says, you know what? America's not working out for me. So here's my idea. Uh, Princess of Carthage. She tries to sell Davenport on a whole different script. And Davenport comes unglued, like, wait, you you haven't written a word. You've been... And it uh, the whole thing becomes a huge scandal with the two of them fighting in the papers. Oh, wow. Girl oh. fight. You know, Chris, it's Crystal and Alexis Carrington. It spills over. Yeah, so she famously falls out with the great ego diva of her the other great ego diva of her day i guess she decides she's going to pivot to playing male parts oh i thought you were going to say ad copy but so now <laughs> there's she's, a few steps between her and that now she's going to she wants to keep acting she loves the, st the spotlight but her new novelty is i'll play a man because again that ties in with her joan of arc image right joan so she War does Woman's macbeth Army. or i mean the scottish king she actually does do Shakespeare. Yeah, she plays Hamlet oh. and some French, uh, some French play uh, of more modern vintage, nineteenth-century French play. If you're not a great actor, 
it's hard to just step into Hamlet. Yeah, it's not the easiest part in the English language. There was a lot of appeal in these um, in seeing women play these parts back then. The actresses loved them because they were meatier parts, but also there was some kind of um, kind of sordid thrill for the audience in seeing an actress in male clo- in seeing a woman in male clothing. You it know? would still be uh, it would still be radical in the theater today. Like I'm going to see Hamlet, except performed by Meryl Streep. Yeah, today it would be edgy, but then it's edgy and sexy. Yeah. Oh, because they can wear the you know Hamlet wears a tunic and breeches. Yeah. Where else are you going to go to see a famous woman in a in a in, in pants in a tunic and breeches? You know, the, her her elaborate outfits and her other things would have been hoops. They would have hid the human form in the way that that everybody back then thought God intended of women. Right. Sure. Um. And that tour, unfortunately, is a disaster as well, and it loses money. This is a woman who was once making $30,000 of our money a night for a speech. And by the 1880s, she, you know, she's been supporting her, her mom and sister. By the 1880s, she is poor. Oh. She has said— She didn't put her money aside. She didn't. She wasn't a, a, a wise John Roderick. Yeah. Um, full, she, of, full of uh, IRAs, SEPAR IRAs. <laughs> She was a, uh, a, a grasshopper, not an ant. Mm-hmm. You, you can name the rock musician. I, I, I wouldn't care to speculate. Oh, so many. Uh, but but uh, MC Hammer springs yes, to mind. Yes, exactly. <laughs> There's, you can be a John Roderick or an MC Hammer. They're the two kinds of music there are. Uh, and so she is, uh, and you know, being kind of playing hard to get with all the great men and women of her day has meant that she's now isolated from people who could help her. Mm-hmm. You know, Benjamin Butler used to call her Lizzie, so she's reduced to, you know, trying to wheedle money out of him in letters. Oh, oh, what I once meant to you, Governor Butler, kind of a thing. Right. It's about this time that as you, if you've seen any behind the music about a great celebrity, it's about this time that the accounts of drinking oh, start sure. to seem a little less social. Sure. You they know, work at a warehouse now. There's always her with a glass of, uh, a glass of wine but now she's got a series of ailments that, coincidentally, her doctors think she should be drinking heavily for. Huh. Okay. Um, right. A, Those were the medicines, the medicaments. She, she starts to, you know, her kidneys are bad. Well, of course, what you need is uh, more beer. Uh-huh. Uh, she is, uh, she smells of liquor and has to insist that her doctor is forcing her to now bathe in it, which oh. explains the which explains the smell. That's a pretty good one. Well, yeah, but expensive. <laughs> bathtub full of liquor. I mean, they don't give it away. Um, She's starting to sound like the bass player of Flock of Seagulls. Some of the medical problems are real, which, of course, makes her financial situation even more precarious. She now owes doctors a ton of money, and she has no income. Um, in, the, in the 1888 campaign, uh, Benjamin Harrison, Grover Cleveland, the Republicans try to bring her out of mothballs. You know, remember... Anna Elizabeth Dickinson, well, she loves General Harrison, you know, because he was a civil, he was one of the last Civil War generals, to, right. to, except for Rutherford B. Hayes, the very last kind of, uh, you know, and, and running very much on the Republican heritage of having successfully won the Civil War. This is like when Twiggy appears in Blues Brothers. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Something for mom and dad. Here's Anna Elizabeth Dickinson. <laughs> Wait, is Twiggy in Blues Brothers? Yeah, sure. Yeah, she's, the she? one, she's the one that uh, that meets um, that meets Elwood at the gas station, and then he stands her up. He stands her up because they're getting chased by the cops. When you've got Carrie Fisher in your movie, the yeah. Twiggy of the late 70s, you do not need the Twiggy of the late 60s. She's driving a Jaguar. She's got her hair up in a crazy knot. So she... Um, 
So she gets trotted out on the campaign trail for Benjamin Harrison. And, you know, as, as has happened in all her other recent business relationships, they pay her the $3,700 and she's like, nope, it was 5000 and, and they say, no, it wasn't. And she says, I'll see you in court. Oh, dear. And, you know, it, and it's tempting to say, well, look, they're um, manipulating, a, a, you know, a, a relatively powerless woman in an age when powerful men could do that. And maybe there is an element of that. But this does seem to be a pattern in her later life that she is um, just constantly in a series of lawsuits against people who she thinks have disrespected her. Yeah. And this is this is very familiar uh in show business that someone, you know, someone who... It's all these showbiz tropes back, yeah. back almost before there is show business. They're not famous anymore, but they think they're more famous than they are. She invented all these... It's a, a Sunset a star, Boulevard. It's a Star is Born or Sunset Boulevard, exactly. Right, and, right. and she invented it 100 years earlier. Um, she has a nervous breakdown for which a doctor blames menopause, if you want a reinforcement of the patriarchal the uh, age order of, of the, the age. Grand old age of 36. Um, and uh, she winds up moving back to Pennsylvania to live with uh, her sister and kind of becomes an eccentric crank in the little v- village of West Pittston. Her sister who saved her money, so it's like the end of the jerk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and it does not go well in her sister's house. It's kind of a, it's not whatever happened to baby Jane, but it is like your crazy aunt is now upstairs and she gets increasingly... Paranoid. She gets a telegram from new, her lawyer in New York saying, hey, you need to come on such and such a date for your lawsuit against the Republican Party. And she's like, I don't believe this at all. My enemies have conspired against me. Why are they trying to draw me to New York? Oh, dear. What does this mean? She refuses to show. It leads to a, you know, a, yet another postponement of her trial. She decides that her sister is starting to tamper with her letters. Um, she starts to see suspicious crystals at the bottom of her coffee and starts to wonder if they are poisoning her. So she Howard Hughes it. She starts to really Howard. At some point there's an incident with sewing shears in which, uh, either accidentally or on purpose, her sister cuts her, gets her finger cut by Anna Dickinson. Oh, I thought Um, you were going to say that she, uh, she used pinking shears on the, on the edge of her dress. She was picking shoes on the edge of her sister. Oh, yikes. Uh, and finally on February, on February 23rd, 1891, her sister has had enough and a group of seven local doctors burst into the room where Anna has locked herself for several weeks, and they institutionalize. They, her. Yes, she is committed to a mental asylum, uh, and you know this only increases the number of legal battles that she's facing. You know, she she spends a number of weeks in an asylum and is then released to the Interpines, which is the home of a, a doctor for kind of outway, outpatient, halfway house kind of stuff. And they tend to agree, yeah, she's, she, you know, she's not a danger to herself or others, but... She hasn't had a complete break. But she is definitely kind of a nutty old person spinning conspiracy theories. I mean, you uh, never know about uh, about bipolar, for instance. Like, yes. you know, how you can be a very inspired, exceptional young person who then over time loses control of the reins of a mental illness that wouldn't have been, no one would have known at the time. And substances appear to be involved here, which is the kind of thing that can accelerate that. Or, you know, it it could also just be, it could have started as self-medication for those, for those problems or demons. And then it just, you know, accelerates the timeline. This is the patent medicine era when she could have been taking all kinds of crazy narcotics. So in addition to her legal battle against the Republican National Committee, she's now suing 
her all the doctors who locked her up. She's suing the press for libel for anybody who wrote about it. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it kind of is much ado about nothing. A lot of these end with hung juries. But, you know, it wasn't just a, a crazy old lady's crusade. She ended up, in the two trials over her commitment, she persuaded 20 of the 24 jurors. Oh. You know, bo- both juries were hung, but, uh, you know, in both cases, she made a persuasive case. 24 jurors. Well, two, it was two different trials after the first hung jury. I see. So uh, what that, that would be, you know, 10 and 2 each time, maybe. Yeah. Um, and her lib- on her libel cases, she went two for three. She won the majority of them. Um, but it's a sad period for her. She's still continuing to write long, rambling letters to anybody she knew from back in the day who's still in the public eye. She makes a deal to write a book, but then her publisher is upset. To, you know, her publisher is like, yeah, write about the the great days of the movement. Write about speaking to Congress. And all she wants to do is settle scores. She oh. just wants a book about, and then Whitelaw Reed said, and then, you know, that he was going to take care of me. But then did you know what the Tribune printed? You know, right. so she has really gone down, you know, kind of her own internal rabbit hole. Uh, and get off of Twitter. That's what I would say to her. Get <laughs> Anna, off, get off of Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> so, you know, she never gets a publishable manuscript. Um, the and, and it gets to the point where in 1910, she clips her own death notice from the paper. You know, somebody's like, Hey, whatever. Ha-, it's Walter Scott's personality parade. Hey, whatever yeah. happened to Anne Elizabeth Dickinson? You remember America's Joan of Arc. Yeah. And the editor says, sadly, she is dead. Oh, really? So it's, it's an a- accident, but it's, it fulfills some, conspiratorial prophecy for her. I think she, yeah, I don't know if she clips it. Maybe she just enjoys the, uh, you know, she enjoys the irony of having outlived all her naysayers. Right. Um, but yeah, she is, she puts that in her scrapbook, just like maybe Norman Schwarzkopf yeah, will when, right. when he hears this episode. <laughs> <laughs> if in fact he's alive, because who knows? Really Are you going to Google it? I'm going to figure out. You don't Norman want it to be, uh, no, 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 you're right. I'll leave it. Schrodinger's general. No, I'll leave it. Um, there is kind of a nice, uh, footnote to the end of her life one of which is she lives until the great depression she lives until the 30s she lives into the early 1930s wow but the uh, entire time like a impoverished like footnote well here's what happens she's living in this doctor's house called interpines uh and the, the kindly groundskeeper and his wife befriend her and when she's released you know she has no place to go benjamin butler is not going to send her money again white law reed is tired of her letters right uh susan b anthony's not taking her calls or answering text. Susan B. Anthony's leaves you on red. You know that's right. You know you're in bad news. Susan and, B. Anthony, uh, of course, not being alive in the 1930s. No, this 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 all happened earlier upon her release from the oh um, for Interpines. from the insane asylum in the uh, in the 18 early 1890s. So she moves into the humble shack of the wood woodcutter. The Ackleys, this nice couple, uh, has a, a you know a little uh, a cottage in town, and they've got a spare bedroom. And George and Sally Ackley are are you know, admirers and boys, you know, she, she was the most famous woman in America. Right. Um, we can put up with, uh, with her cranky outbursts. Right. It's like having Dick Cavett come live with you. (laughs) Wouldn't that be the dream? (laughs) I spent a week in a hotel with Dick Cavett. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that would be the dream. I'm sure he's doing, what's an example of somebody who, if they were like, Ken, you know, Sir Ian McKellen's in trouble. He's, he's blown all his money on unwise and on on unwise investments. He put it on GameStop I don't think Ian McKellen was ever the most famous person in America, though. What is who was the most? It's like Evil Knievel coming to live with you. 
okay, Lee Majors <laughs> is looking for a place to stay. Right, Burt Reynolds. In a heartbeat, you would you would put Lee Majors in your guest room, Absolutely, right? Absolutely, I would. And that's what the Ackleys do. And she lives as kind of, a, you know, it, it would be tempting, maybe this is, again, the patriarchal voice, but it's tempting to say she lives as a rec- reclusive old lady uh, in this in New England town in, well into the early 1930s. Um, but you know, it's probably more accurate to say she's just an old lady and she doesn't go out much. Right. Um, she gave no speeches about world war one or the roaring twenties or the great depression. She did not. She lived to see women get the vote, which many of her contemporaries did not. That's nice. She never actually voted, I guess by, by the time she was able, she was burned out on the whole thing. Didn't care. Never, uh, didn't vote for Hoover. Ironically never voted. (laughs) Um, but what's interesting is that later, um, Later historians checking in on, you know, kind of rediscovering Anna Dickinson in the early 20th century went to see the Ackleys, the family that she lived with. And uh, it became very clear from interviewing them that that, uh, George and Sally Ackley kept their uh, cordial relationship. But in fact, uh, Anna Dickinson and Sally Ackley were a very happy couple. Or thruple, I don't want to speculate. Oh, but that she found, uh, Mr. Ackley was a beard. <laughs> Mr. Ackley was kind or of the a reverse beard. Was kind of a yeah. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to speculate, but that uh, she and Sally Ackley had a happy, partnered relationship. Oh, isn't that nice? And I think Sally outlived George Ackley, so you know, after he died, they didn't have to worry about his his reputation, or, his sensitivities, or yeah, or, or delicate feelings. Yeah, um, and. Uh, and she got the, you know, even though she never married, she finally got domesticity in her in, in her happy old age, or as happy as she could be after a, a meteoric rise to fame, followed by a just a kind of a sad and very American decline. Right. What a what a what a touching denouement. Uh, there should be a movie. If Mary Anning gets a movie by pretending she's lesbian, Kate Winslet, you know, this seems like it's tailor made for a. I mean, it's got it's got three acts, right? Who would play her? Uh, Winona Ryder. Yes, Winona Ryder. Except, yeah, right. Winona and then, Ryder. And, and then digital digital goth eighties Winona Ryder as young. Do you de-age one person, or do you suddenly switch? Uh, switch do you suddenly switch it up when she's coming down Pike's Peak midstream. Winona, yeah, yeah, like. Uh, uh, Which is more unsettling? Who would it be? Uh, uh, Anya Taylor Joy goes up Pike's Peak in a mule, and Winona Ryder comes down. I don't think that digital technology is quite up to snuff enough to to turn her into a into a Princess Leia, a young Princess Leia from behind. Hope because she's going to have to give like long impassioned speeches in the first act of the film. We need to wait. We need to wait for technology to catch up and yeah. give us Anna Elizabeth Digitson. And right, and wait, wait for Winona to age enough that she could plausibly be a crazy bitty what you need to do is start shooting it now with a young actress and oh, just you and make it for 50 years do it there the uh do it the link later way and that concludes america's joan of arc entry 040.2s1412 certificate number 44568 in the omnibus Futurelings, in the unlikely event that you were famous, internationally famous or nationally famous, in your young years as a zygote, and now are relegated to living with the gardener's wife, uh, you can communicate with Ken on Twitter and Instagram, 
at Ken Jennings. Uh, you can email us both, and Ken might read your email to me at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can support the show at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Uh, I also have a Patreon under my name. You can go find other futurelings who resemble you in every way, as long as you are a librarian or a mycologist, uh, under the futurelings heading on all available places for people to discourse with one another, including shortwave radio. And you can mail us things at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Now, all that ripping sound you're hearing is Ken opening our mail. What do you got over there, Ken? You got a gift. I did. Yes, from our friend John K. at Rochester, who uh, is welcoming us to the Vespa Motorsport family. Oh, sweet nectar. And it's a housewarming gift. John K. He sent you a Vespa. Oh, isn't that sweet? It's a little die-cast model Vespa. It's not even that little. It's the it's uh, it's the size of not quite a Barbie Vespa. It's like a G.I. Joe Vespa. Is this like from, is this some Vespa reseller or is this actually, does Vespa still exist as a corporate entity? Oh, Vespa does. I mean, Vespa is now making new, what, what we call plastic twist and goes, but this is a Vint, oh well, no, not quite. It's a P200E, which is the one of the ones that I owned and I don't know, I don't think they still make the P200, but they do in India. They still are making these in India under the Stella brand. How cool. I love this Vespa. It's got, um, this Vespa has some, like, um, some chromed, like, bumpers, which make it not quite mod, but mod-ish. Let me be the first to welcome you, John, to the Vespa Motorsport family. Thank you. You've taken your first step into a wider world. Vespa Motorsports. We also received from Sally in a uh, anti-static... Look, it's an anti-static mailer. Do not bend or fold and avoid exposure to all magnetic fields. Oh. What, Sally, what are you sending how, up to how, us that the, many, magnetic, the magnetism could interfere with? How many gauss uh, <laughs> is this protecting us from? I hope we degaussed the mail as usual. Oh, look, Sally also sent us Lego representations of ourselves. Oh. I have to say, mine is a dead ringer, but you uh, you are just a little man with a mustache now. Oh. Well, you know, I've noticed, I've noticed when I appear in photographs with a mustache that a lot of futurelings object. They say, wait. I do not. I do not accept John with a mustache. He must. John with the beard is the canonical John. John with a mustache is just some some anti-pope. Yeah, some anti-pope. Some false god. This does look very much like you, and I look like you yeah. look like um. Hmm. You. It's kind of a little pencil mustache. Like you look like um, Timothy Dalton in the Rocketeer yeah. or something. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, the, this is one of me. That's that's the go to Hawaii me, right? I always shave my beard so that I can wear snorkels more comfortably when I go to Hawaii. Uh, the, the reason why Sally made us these minifigures is because her boys are now in their late 20s, early 30s, and now they've got a room full of Legos that they don't know what to do with. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. have you. that same problem. I do. Except my, you know what to do with them. Well, my kids are aging out of the Legos, and I don't even know what to do with them. I've got... I've got Give them to me. I've got a little kid who loves Legos. 
Maybe we'll give them all away one Lego at a time over on the show. I've told you this 500 times, and you're like, yeah, I'm not quite ready to get rid of my Legos. Well, I don't know if... Go um, down and look at them. I don't know. Uh, yeah, what's, what's my project? What am I going to build out of Lego? You already have a Saturn V. Why don't you build, um, like, uh, Castle Wolfenstein? <laughs> How about a life-size version of us doing a podcast? Oh, I like that. Including the table. So it's got to be, the, yes. it will weigh like 8,000 pounds. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>